Let's start by asking a couple of questions, okay? How many people can name the five freedoms of the First Amendment? Now, I'm not going to ask you to name them. I'm just going to ask you how many can do it. Okay, one person can do that. How many can do four of them? I think you could get four of those freedoms. Three. How many can name three? All right, got a couple takers on three. Two of the freedoms in the First Amendment? One of the freedoms? Who here has heard of the First Amendment? Let's, let's, let's get down to, to brass tags here. Okay, good. We've got some people. Well, you're not alone, and you shouldn't be uh, upset about that. Guess how many people nationally can name all five freedoms of the First Amendment? One percent of the survey. Here's a more startling uh, statistic. Fifty-eight percent of the country is the, is the number who can name just one. Okay? And it goes down from there. So it's not... A, uh, an area. We all hear about the First Amendment. We hear it uh, brought up uh, in a variety of contexts. But when it comes to actually knowing what it says, very few of us know that. And that's unfortunate because what happens is the context in which the First Amendment is brought up is, brought up is often with some unsavory people. We hear it in the context of flag burners. We hear it in the context of pornographers. We hear it in the context of a journalist who maybe made up a source or, or uh, made up a story, even, as we've heard in recent, unfortunately, in journalism in recent days. When it comes to high school students, the numbers are getting even worse. How many people saw a story in the paper in the last couple of weeks about high school student views in the First Amendment? Did you see that? Startling, startling things happening in high schools. 75% of the students in high school, and this was a survey of over about 125,000 students, 75% of them said that they didn't either know what the First Amendment was about or admitted that they just took it for granted. Okay. Half of them believe that the government can regulate the Internet, which it cannot do, at least, at least yet. And... A third of them, and this is probably the most troubling one for me, a third of those students said that newspaper articles, or more than a third actually, it was almost closer to a half, newspaper articles should be approved by the government before they're published in the paper. I'm glad you found that <laughs> equally as startling as I did. It is a scary situation out there, but you know, for those of us who study speech issues, it really is not, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. And let me tell you why. In the public school area right now, there is a great assault taking place on student speech. And I'll tell you where it started. It started back in 1999, and you all probably remember back in April of 1999, there was this little event called Columbine High School shooting. And there was a shooting in, uh, in Paducah, Kentucky. And, you know, there are school shootings every so often. We had one just recently in the news, as you know. And the schools went to, into sort of an immediate zero-tolerance situation. You may have heard about some of these zero-tolerance policies in school. And what that means is if you breathe the word gun or threat or violence or anything like that, it's automatic. You're out of there. Since 1999, I've tracked literally hundreds and hundreds of these episodes at schools across the country. And I'm going to give you just a few examples, lest you think that I'm just, uh, you know, well, a typical academic who doesn't know what's going on in the school systems and so forth. Let me tell you about some of these things and see if you are as equally disturbed by these as I am. 
A five-year-old in Sayreville, New Jersey, young kindergarten student, was in kindergarten, was out at recess playing with a couple of his friends. They were playing cops and robbers. And he went up to one of his friends like this and he said, stick him up or I'll shoot. A teacher heard that on the playground, took all three of those students, marched them to the principal's office, and they were immediately suspended. They were suspended for making terroristic threats and, my favorite, simulated use of a firearm. That's simulated use of a firearm. The uh, parents of one of the youngsters decided they, you know, they had enough of this, so they filed a lawsuit in federal district court in New Jersey, and the case was appealed up to the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Third Circuit is the circuit that we live in. It covers Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and for some unknown reason, other than judges' conferences, I guess, the U.S. Virgin Islands is also swept up in the, in the Third Circuit. Why? I've never been able to quite figure that out. But the U.S. Court of Appeals upheld the school district's ability. And as I looked at cases, that was one of the ones that really struck me. There was another guy, 13-year-old, just last year, uh, seventh grader in uh, Denton, Texas, wrote a story about Halloween. It was a scary story about Halloween. It scored in his English class 100. So he got to read it to his seventh grade class. When the school officials heard the story, which, you know, was kind of graphic and violent, they immediately not only suspended him, he was put in jail for five days. He spent five days, believe it or not, locked up in jail. There was another kid out in Utah who was locked up in jail. Since he was in Utah, I was lucky he got out. And he, he uh, was, that was for a website that he created. Now, these website cases that these students are creating are not being created in their school. They're not being created in the, the classroom or as a part of a school project. These are their own personal websites at home. But if the school finds out about it, they have extended sort of their long-arm jurisdiction to suspend these kids. And the sad part about that is that federal courts are backing up the school district. So we have this great language from the Supreme Court back in 1969 in a case called, and some of you might have remembered this case, Tinker versus Des Moines, Iowa School District. It was the case of a couple of kids in high school who wore a, a black armband to school in the protest of the war in Vietnam. The principal said, you wear that again, you're going to be suspended. The kids wore it in the next day, they were suspended. <coughs> case made its uh, way through the court system all the way up to the Supreme Court. When it got to the Supreme Court, the court said, it ruled in favor of the students, saying, you do not, and this is a great line from the case, you do not shed your constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. That only if there is a substantial and material disruption to the educational environment can a school system step in and sanction speech. This was political speech. So, we have that great precedent, U.S. Supreme Court precedent. But over the years, and particularly since 1999, there has been a gradual erosion of those rights by school districts. And sadly, from my perspective, the federal courts are sanctioning that. And here's why. If you read the opinions, the courts are constantly saying we are going to give great deference to the school systems. We're going to get great deference to the school system because we're not there. We're judges sitting on the bench here in Philadelphia or in Louisiana or wherever. We're not in the classroom. We don't know. We're going to give great deference. And, we're not going to, and, and they're so 
pardon the expression, but so gun-shy after all of the school shootings. You don't want to be that judge who says, you know, I, let the, 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 I gave it to the school district and now there was another school shooting. So they're erring a little too much on the side of caution. I say a little too much because it has some grave consequences for how society at large and how students who are inculcated through the school system begin to think. Those survey results, which are the first uh, look, they just came out in the last couple months, the first look at how high school students perceive the First Amendment, again, is not surprising. I talk to students in my classes all the time, and they are used to being censored in school. They are used to having their school newspaper pages yanked or having stories approved. There was a, a, an incredible uh, case just recently uh, involving a school newspaper where the student as a high school student, did an enterprising story. There, was a, uh, there were school buses that were parked uh, right by the school building every day, and they were idling, and the, the fumes from the bus were making people sick. Kid did a story. The local media did a story. There was a, some neighbors who had sued. The kid called the neighbors, did a four-hour interview. This is a high school student. Did a four-hour interview with the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. I mean, we teach journalists in... Uh, and, and I don't know any of our students who can do a four-hour interview and, and go through and, and methodically tick through this. Well, the school yanked the story. And the lawyer for the school district said, well, we wouldn't have had a problem if she said that the school district should have, was right and should have won the case. Then we would have let the story go. But because she was uh, using uh, other, uh, you know, it was, it was going the, a different direction with the story, they felt that they could yank the story. And unfortunately... Now, in that case, fortunately, the, the judge stepped in and said no, but that's a rare case because of the deference and because of some school cases uh, that have come down in uh, recent years, giving school districts more power to do that. Now, I know, and I, every year I address two major national conferences on education. One deals with, uh, one's in Virginia, one's in Portland, Maine. They're all administrators and teachers and principals and superintendents and Lawyers for school districts. I, mean, I barely make it out of these conferences alive. I've got to wear you know, a Kevlar vest when I go in there. Because they're saying, you don't understand. Like, let's... And one woman stood up in the back, and this was, I think, the best example. I was giving that example of the kindergarten student with his, with his uh, you know, going to the other kids on, on the playground. And when she referred to that case, and she was very animated and very angry, she said, she goes, well, the shooter in that case. And I said, whoa, this is not a shooter. A shooter brings a gun into school, and sure, you can go after people like that. But I think that's kind of what's happening now. And then you go from that situation into sort of the political arena. And you know, this also deals with sort of the, the, the high school or, or even grade school student speech. This notion of restricting access to video games. I know how we solve the problem of Columbine. I know how to solve the problem of school shootings. We're just not going to let kids play violent video games. That's what legislators are saying all over the country. There's been, since January 1, 15 bills have been introduced across the country to restrict access to violent video games. And Washington, D.C. has it. And everybody, the governor of Illinois, just before Christmas, stood up and he said, you know, we're going to stop this. This is terrible. This is why, uh, you know, kids are going out and killing each other because of these terrible, horrible games. Well, here's the problem with that. There has never been one shred of evidence linking the playing of violent video games to a shooting incident involving a minor. Not one. And every single federal court that has looked at this legislation has struck it down as unconstitutional. 
Why? Because a video game is a, is a speech product. A video game has First Amendment protection. It has story elements, it has action, it has interactivity, and that is the same argument, oddly enough, that lawmakers are using to try to get the uh, video games you know, struck uh, uh, video game legislation in place, saying that, you know, yeah, these things are different now. We, you know, it's different technology, so we, we shouldn't protect it under the First Amendment. Well, a federal judge in Chicago, very conservative federal judge and very well-known by the name of Richard Posner, wrote an excellent opinion in a court of appeals case involving video game legislation out of St. Louis. And he said a couple of things that I think are important for our discussion here today. First, he said... These, all good literature is interactive. You know, this is nothing new to have interactivity with, with literature or story elements. Anybody who reads a book is sort of getting interactive with the, with the text. So that's nothing new. Second, he says, why are we trying to shield minors from everything when, you know, they'll grow up in an intellectual bubble and then all of a sudden they turn 18 and we throw them out into society? And in... Uh, Judge Posner is more of, a, more of the, uh, one of the more philosophical judges on the, uh, on, the, on the court and has been around for a lot of years. And so his opinions generally spark that type of, of discussion. And he says, we don't want kids growing up in an intellectual bubble. But mostly he says, yeah, we'll allow this legislation if anybody can show us a direct connection between playing games and going out and, and getting creating violence or doing violent behavior. And until that happens, none of these pieces of legislation will get enacted, and the lawmakers who introduce them know that point, but they do it anyway because it makes good copy and it makes a good impression because people back in the school, their, their districts, their constituents can say, right on, he or she is doing something for us. They're trying to protect kids. And who can argue against protecting kids? Well, I certainly won't argue against protecting kids, but these bills won't do it. What they will do, however, is create an environment for suppression of speech. And little by little, that's what's happening in our, uh, in our country, in our society. We see this gradual erosion. It doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't even happen sometimes in venues where we can readily recognize it. But little by little, we see an erosion of speech rights. And I've got to tell you something, folks. Once they go away, you ain't getting them back. Okay, it took a long time to create and carve out these rights that we have and that 75% of the high school students in this country take for granted by their own admission. It took a long time to get those rights, and now we see an erosion, gradual erosion. And they disguise themselves in, in really nice fashion. You know, we're protecting students in the schools. We're protecting our kids from video games. One, just on that video game, one interest, well, I thought was an interesting aside. In Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania had a bill, didn't get passed yet. Didn't uh, have a bill to try to restrict access to people under the age of 17 to violent video games, you know, things with guns and so forth. Guess how old you have to be in Pennsylvania to get a hunting license? 12. 12 years old. You get a junior hunting license at 12 years old. So you can get a gun at 12. But keep that controller out of your hands because that's, that's going to cause you to do violent activity. That's the kind of things that's happening. And unfortunately, and I don't mean to be an alarmist, but it is happening in sort of an alarming fashion. So I, with that, there are several other topics. I'm just going to throw them out and then I want to open it up to discussion. But uh, uh, there's an effort, even now a bipartisan effort, 
the ACLU and the American Conservative Union getting together to try to repeal parts of the Patriot Act because they're recognizing some of the speech implications of that. We have those types of issues going on. Indecency and broadcasting. Okay, I thought that was going to be a big kind of splash in the pan, you know, after, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Janet Jackson, you know. So Michael Powell steps down from the FCC as chair, and is replaced by a guy by the name of Kevin Martin. Turns out, we find out, lo and behold, it wasn't Powell all this time who was really pushing this agenda. He was doing that begrudgingly. It was Kevin Martin who was behind it. So regulation of indecency on the airwaves is probably going to be with us for a little bit while longer as well. And what we're doing is we're sort of drudging up a lot of old law in the First Amendment area. And when we revisit this law, I'm afraid what can happen to it. Established precedent that has been in place for years, that gave us rights, that gave students rights, that was kind of a nice balance. And now that balance is, is, uh, is threatened. 